Welcome to Wholesale Change, the podcast and webcast from Distribution Strategy Group, where we provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents. I'm one of your co-hosts today. My name is Ian Heller. I'd like to bring in my business partner, my trusted friend, the tower of analytical power, the doctor of distribution, Jonathan Bine, PhD. How are you doing today, Jonathan? I'm well, Ian. How are you? I'm doing great. You guys can see my screen okay? I can see your video fine. Okay, so we have a really uh, interesting topic today. It's painless pricing improvements for distributors. You looking forward to this discussion, Jonathan? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good one. I think, uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of input on this. It's funny, you know, we try to get some um, feedback from our audience before we start. And, you know, we have a lot of ideas for this one, and we're hoping to get a lot more during the broadcast. So uh, let's jump into the first uh, slide, uh, first and only slide today. And these are our favorite Profit driving hacks. And uh, we've got about nine of them here. We're going to get more from the audience as we go. Jonathan, do you want to take the first one? You bet. There was a study done by McKinsey a number of years ago that showed the power of 1% of different things that you could do. So 1% reduction in COGS, 1% reduction in SGNA, 1% increase in revenue, 1% increase in margin. And it turned out that the increase in margin was by far the most significant effect on the bottom line. Um, their analysis showed, and I'm not sure why it required McKinsey to do this, if you can, if you can get another point of margin and you're a 10-point bottom line company, you just improved your bottom line by 10%. Now, not a ton of distributors have a 10-point bottom line, so the impact is going to be even greater if you get an additional point of pricing improvement. So if you're a 3% bottom line and you get another point of pricing, pricing margin, you just increase your profitability by 33%. An important underlying assumption here, some of you may be familiar with it, is that in general, things are a little bit less elastic than we think. Um, so in other words, you can, you can typically get that additional point of margin or perhaps a couple of points of margin without having uh, much uh, elasticity in, in what you're selling. Yeah, I think when uh, this relates to the next point, you know, the customers I think are a lot less sensitive to small markups than the customer service people are who are often setting the prices, you know, and I think we're in distribution, we're t- sort of afflicted with doing simple math, you know, everything's on a markup basis or maybe a gross margin basis. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, th- I want to connect the two uh, first, the first two bullets for a second, Jonathan, mm-hmm. and get the benefit of your experience here. But what I've seen is that um, there are an awful lot of salespeople and and customer service people, and you know they're trying to set a price on something. They'll just do cost plus twenty or cost plus fifteen or cost plus twenty five or whatever. And the reality is there is not really any elasticity in these prices. So you could go. That cost plus 15 could be cost plus 17 or 18, and that cost plus 20 could be 21, 22, 23, et cetera, and no one would notice it wouldn't cost you any sales. Is that your experience? 100%. And then if we tie it back to the previous point, so so previous points, 1%. The examples you gave were 1%, 2 and 3% increase in, in pricing. So 2% increase in pricing on yeah. a 3% bottom line is a 67% profit improvement. Yeah, and I think that the – you know, a lot of customer service people, you know, they haven't had a financial accounting and they aren't familiar with income statements and they don't realize that, you know, that when, if you take a $30 item and you raise it by, um, by a dollar, (laughs) 
that's a huge increase in profit. And it's not a very big increase on, on, on $30, but that profit all falls at the bottom line because none of the costs are changing just because you're raising the price by a dollar. Um, yeah, and I think another piece of what you're saying about the round markups or discounts, uh, conversely, is that 5% is a round markup, right, mm -hmm. or, or discount. So if you can do a 3.8% discount or a 3.75% discount instead of a 5%, you just got another point and a quarter for, for your company, and, and that's goodness. Yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of cases, people are in such a hurry for the product. I mean, you know, so Amazon used to have this reputation for being the cheapest place in town. Does anybody really believe that anymore? I mean, you know, especially with the third-party sellers, they're not necessarily an inexpensive place to buy things. People are not buying even from Amazon just based on price. They're buying because it's convenient and they can get it quickly. Well, the same holds true for distributors. You don't have to be the cheapest on everything. You need to provide good service and stand behind what you sell and, you know, have the right technical advice and help people get the product how they want it. That's worth money to people. Absolutely. You know, and I think in retail, um, a lot of what happens in retail is smart retailers will figure out what are the set of things that I sell by which I will be judged on pricing. So it might be milk and butter, right? I'm, sure. I'm, I'm judged as inexpensive, you know, regular or expensive based on prices of milk and butter, or maybe there's a hundred items. And I think a similar thing's true in distribution. If you can get the pricing right, on that set of items by which you are commonly judged, you can create the impression of what you want, that we are affordably priced, that we are at parity, um, or that we are more expensive. So, image, image items. Image items, yeah, there you go. Yep. Right. Is right. that the term, by the way? Yeah, well, I think so. That's, what, that's the term we always used when, in my career, is that, you know, the image items were the ones that set the, you know, set the impression in the mind of the customer about how competitive you were. So. You know, years ago, if you were an HVAC distributor, the uh, T87F, the round gold, Honeywell thermostat was the image item, was an image item price. And people wanted to know what you charged for that. I mean, I remember in my own life, when my kids were little, you know, we would, we would look in the Sunday paper, <laughs> paper, uh, to see which of the big discount stores had the cheapest pampers. And we'd buy $500 worth of product from that store based on checking one item. And I think, you know, it's a little bit different today, obviously, because of the internet, but still people are not, you know, they're not cross shopping every, every little thing that they, that they buy from you. You know, they're, they're looking for good service and they're expecting you to be competitive and not, you know, hurt them. But, uh, the, you know, they, they aren't expecting you to be the lowest price on everything. Actually, we have a comment that says, uh, Ian, when we looked at first quartile, this is from one of our listeners, Ian, when we looked at first quartile versus average performers in the Jansen industry across a number of variables, the difference in any one variable was very small, but the sum of those marginal differences added up to the difference between an average distributor and a top quartile distributor. So, so I think what he's saying is that the pricing differences per on any given skew tended to be very small, but you, you know, you add them all up cumulatively and it makes a huge difference in the profitability of the company, right? Yep. It is, it's a game of inches. So you, you get a few inches or microns on this deal and that deal pretty soon you add it up and to, to the commenter's point, um, you're going to see a large aggregate effect. So how do you implement this, Jonathan? I mean, when you're, when you're consulting with a client about pricing and they say, well, okay, great, but how do I get everybody to raise prices 1%, which is, you know, a bit of an oversimplification. How do you go about making this happen in a real, in, in a real environment? 
Well, I think to the uh, the commenter's point about the quartile, or we can go to deciles, um, you're typically not going to get a lot of price movement in your first decile. Your largest customers, you're typically not going to be able to raise price, prices much there. But one of the techniques that I think is, is well understood is if you look at bottom eight deciles or bottom four quintiles, the bottom 80% of your customer base, you can push up the prices on C and D items to those customers, 5, 10, 15, 20%. And you will get that one or two or three point lift at the bottom line. Um, if, you, if you do the math, by the way, I mean, you, can, you can run this as your own experiment. Uh, see what would happen if you pushed up your, your C&D items to the bottom 80% of your customer base, 5%, 10%, 15%, 20%. And you'll see that it's a, it's a large aggregate effect. So I think recognizing that you're, it's gonna be harder to move those large customers or I mean, it's impossible to move like a power buyer, right? So if you're, you're selling to a power buyer, it's gonna be impossible to move them, um, but you can, you can make good headway uh, without much elasticity um, by pushing up those C&D items. But how do, you, how, do you how do you operationalize it? A lot of it depends on how, how people get a price at, uh, within their company as a distributor. So is the CSR typically pulling it from an ERP system? So if you can, if you can get that into your ERP system, I, I think the, the better answer is to get a pricing system. Uh, the pricing systems will help you do this. So Sparks IQ used to be known as Strategic Pricing Associates loads right into the ERP system and it's transparent to a customer service rep who's pulling a price from there. If somebody's yeah. working with a pricing system, uh, a pros, a zillient, any of the other uh, systems, they'll, they'll get it from the system. So I think to the extent that it's coming from a system and is relatively transparent to the person who's getting the price, that's going to be the best move. Yeah, I agree. I think another thing is you, you've got to teach basic profitability analytics to the people on the front lines. They need to understand that, you know, cutting a price is a big deal. And we talked about this last week where, you know, you sit with a customer service agent and they just give out discounts like it's another nice thing you do for your customers rather than it being the, the thing you do to get paid back for all the service you offer your customers. And so they need to not be so, you know, reactionary and hand out discounts and they need to charge more, but they have to understand the math behind it because 1% doesn't sound like very much. And that applies to giving a 1% discount or charging more. 1% just doesn't seem like much. So a lot of times they'll give away five and 10% is what I've seen. And, you know, they need to understand that that just devastates the financials of a company. And in many cases, that's all of your profit, your, your net profit that's going away. So you've got to teach them, you know, how this works so that they can make better decisions on behalf of the company. Well, and I think if also, if we tie back to, to last week, one of your, your key points was you get the behavior, you reward, mm -hmm. right? So part of, Part of that process, to your point, is is educating them about the math on this stuff, yeah, um, and then creating the incentive systems around that. Great. We have a question. Uh, this one's for you, Jonathan. How are you defining uh, C and D? He says, "I know there's slower moving items, but do you have a specific metric that you use?" I think is the question. I, th I think there's a number of, of metrics. Typically, the C and D items are if you if you look at your your curve, um, the head to the tail. These are the, the C and D together would account for the bottom eight or 10% of your revenue or eight, eight or 10% of your volume. Okay. Is that what you've typically seen in? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a good question. I don't know that I have an answer. I'd have to think about it, but I, I think, yeah, it's, 
it's a lot more than that of your SKUs, right? So it's an old, it's the old, it's 80, right. 20, or maybe even to your point, it's 90, 10. Mm-hmm. So it's a large number of SKUs and they're not turning. So, you know, when you have a chance to sell them, you should, but they're not also not price sensitive because the fact that they're not turning means they're not popular and people aren't price shopping. They're not looking around. They're, they're looking forward to finding it. So I, th- I think that's probably a pretty accurate uh, estimate. Um, and uh, so the, the, the following question is, so the same manufacturer can have A and B items and also C and D items. And, and yes, the answer is yes. You could have, you could have SKUs from one manufacturer that, are, that fall in every category of turns, right? They like a distributor. They're not, the same brand may have A, B, C, and D items. Correct. Yes. Okay. All right. Let's talk about centralizing purchasing to buy better. So, you know, it's funny because a lot of distributors have very distributed sourcing. So, you know, lots of people are qualified or authorized to do what they call buyouts, for example, where I can go source an item for a customer anytime they need it. And, you know, they kind of view that distributed sourcing as, an advantage because it's, they're flexible. We'll do anything it takes to satisfy the customer. But a lot of times what that means is you have a whole bunch of suppliers selling to you and they know what you're buying and you don't know what you're buying from them, right? So if you're sourcing a whole bunch from a master distributor, but it's happening across your organization, you're probably using a generic SKU, right? You're probably saying, look, all of our sourced items are one I'll put in a description, I'll put in a price and a cost, but you don't really know how much you're buying from that master distributor because you don't have a vendor number on that on that buyout and you don't have a, uh, a proper skew on that buyout. So you're not able to aggregate that information and get smarter and buy better over time. So I don't think you can go from an organization where, you know, 200 people are buying in a distributed fashion and, you know, sourcing everything to meet uh, customer needs and then immediately centralize. But I think you need to put some kind of centralization in place because, you know, you, you're, otherwise you have a bunch of amateurs buying from a bunch of, professionals, right? You got a bunch of amateurs making purchases uh, from people who are probably better negotiators and more savvy and better trained on how to do it. And the margin opportunity in my experience there is extraordinary. And putting some business rules around, you know, purchasing and starting with something modest, purchases over a certain amount or, you know, you, you limit the number of vendors that people can buy from without going to, you know, some central source, I, mean, I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity in here, in my experience. Um, and I'm curious. So you you think there's a couple points of of margin you could get three? What's what? What have you seen? Yeah, oh, I think it's uh, well. It depends on the nature of the business model and the products you're selling. I think it's hundreds of basis points, and because it's related to some of the other stuff that's in here about strategic buying agreements and marketing co-op and rebates, and you know, so let's say that you run an industrial distributor and you've got, you know, 50 people in the field doing buyouts and they're going, and you know what, typically those people are doing buyouts from McMaster car and Granger and master distributors and fasten on. And they're just going wherever they need to, to get the product, which means they're not only, you know, creating a markup for themselves, but they're paying somebody else's markup. That's probably bigger than the one that you're getting. Right. And let's say that they're buying, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in bearings a year, but you don't know it because it's, all under this generic skew and in or a lot of it's under generic skew all you know is it's a buyout from granger or a buyout from fastall or a buyout from you know uh, uh bearings plus or whatever so you don't really know and and you're just passing that through well if you actually knew that you were buying a hundred thousand dollars in bearings you could go to timkin or some other bearing manufacturer and set up a program and buy directly from the manufacturer and you might see those costs cut very dramatically 
And now your sales of those products are going to skyrocket because you're competitive and you mm -hmm. represent a full line and you get some training and you know what you're doing. But all of those lessons are lost forever when you're blind to what you're sourcing. So, you know, the, the, it, you can get into whole new product lines at very favorable margins, but you have to have the analytics around it. I think anonymous purchases have to go away. You have to find a way to identify what you're buying and from whom. That's where it starts. So even before you centralize, you need a system that allows you to, to know exactly what you're buying, have the manufacturer's number in there and specify the vendor and start aggregating the data because you're going to find all kinds of savings from putting that data in place. So one of our commenters has suggested that it's three to 7%, depending on the categories in terms of the, the impact. Yeah, I know this person. He's very knowledgeable. He's been in, around for a long time. Mm -hmm. I used to work for him. And my guess is that if he says it's three to 7%, and I think he means 300 to 700 basis points, uh, I, would, I would not bet against that. I would say that's probably right. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Jonathan, you want to address the next one, making web pricing consistent with contract pricing? Sure. So in our uh, How to Build a Doomed website, one of the things that we talked about was um, doing pricing that's going to upset your, your customers who have contract pricing. Um, what you want to avoid as a situation is that the price they see online is better than their contract pricing. You will not only lose the deal, you might actually lose a customer. So um, this, is a, this is a really broad brush statement, um, but I think where, where you where you want to be, you can't, you can't be perfect in this. You're going to have some situations where your web pricing is uh, occasionally better than your, your contract pricing, but you want to minimize those. So the way to do that philosophically is to say, if we look at pricing for the first decile, um, that's going to be your best pricing, and that's going to cover 65 to 90% of the revenue you get. So if we, if we want to avoid this, this, clash between web pricing and contract pricing, if you set the web pricing at about where the middle of your second decile of customers, you'll show a competitive price on the web, but you're also going to be at a price that is higher than what your biggest customers are paying. So that's a, that's a broad brush guideline. You could decide to be you know, closer to the first decile, closer to the third decile, but, but it, as a rough guideline, the, the middle of that second decile. I know you have some thoughts on this, Ian. What, what, say? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I agree with you. I think based on how distributors set up their business models today, that's probably the best you can do. And I certainly have worked for distributors where, you know, the web prices are artificially high because you never want to lose a dollar of gross margin that a sales rep could add onto a contract price that's artificially high. But I think, you know, first of all, if you've got your major customers overpaying and you think you're going to trick them for a long period of time, that's probably naive and they're going to be mad at you when they figure out <laughs> that you're overcharging them, you know? And so I think you need to be careful with that. I think the, uh, the, the other thing is that, you know, in all these pricing discussions, you know, as usual, uh, Amazon does something differently, right? I mean, Bezos says my profitability is not my customer's problem. Right. And so he's tries to be competitive first and he's built extraordinary share with that methodology. Now the difference between, him and distributors who are sacrificing margin is his is built into a whole strategy around growth and, you know, capitalization of the firm through extraordinary growth over a long period of time in a way that inspires analysts to recommend their stock. Right. So that's not how most distributors are sacrificing margin that they, that they could, 
you know, gain for themselves. But I think, I do think, you know, this notion of, you know, trying to maximize pricing in every, on every transaction has its limits. I know you're not suggesting that, you know, but you, know, you, you shouldn't be losing margin because of a, a bad execution, which is what a lot of what we're addressing today. But it, you know, it might be that it's also possible to overprice in a way that in the long term costs you market share that you would be better off gaining. We, we had a question related to this um, about uh, what's known as IMAP internet minimum advertised pricing. And the way the way internet minimum advertised pricing works is you are required to show a display, a, min, a minimum advertised price, um, which may be different than the actual selling price. So this is essentially a control on the advertised price, but not on the actual price of the product. I'm not seeing a ton of that in distribution uh, at this point. First of all, I mean, even a separate point is whether somebody shows their, their pricing without logging in, that's, a, that's another piece. But I, I haven't come across significant cases where, where companies are using IMAP. Uh, it's pretty common in construction supplies and probably some other yeah. sectors. I, I, what I find is, the more sophisticated companies use it all the time, right? So with Honda, you know, and I don't know if they've changed it, but when I was in industry, if you, you know, violated their map price on the internet three times, then you couldn't advertise their SKUs at all for several months, right? So, and they were rigorous around that. I mean, they were, if you violate, it didn't matter who you were, if you violated that policy, then you were out of the Honda small engine and generator marketing business for a while. And some of the power tool manufacturers are pretty rigid about it. So, um, I, I think I think it's out there for the more sophisticated manufacturers. I think it's getting harder and harder to maintain, and so it's less likely to be around in the long run. But as of when I left industry two and a half years ago, it was still pretty common uh, among larger industrial manufacturers. Okay, this web. I want to go back to web pricing consistent with contract pricing for just a minute, Jonathan. Do you? Is there a way to go through and I mean, do you gather up your contracts with big customers and then just? You, you probably have SKUs at different prices on contracts with big customers, right? So do you Correct. take, so do you take them and average them? I mean, do you have an approach to doing that? Well, again, you know, like um, channel conflict, you can't eliminate channel conflict, but you can attempt to minimize it. Right. Right. So there are ways to analytically review the, the contract prices relative to your, your web list price. And you can see what the number of conflicts is. Right. Okay. And then you could you could decide, you know, how are we going to deal with this? You know, is this a is this a common item? Is this an A or a B item? You know, and we're going to place more emphasis on getting the A and the B items right relative to the contract pricing. So you don't have to if you've got 40,000 SKUs. You may only have to do this for 500 or 1000. So got it. OK, uh, I right, Let's move on to the next one. Um, and this is uh, putting strategic buying agreements or SBAs in place um, with all of your suppliers. So. I've seen this done in several different uh, large distribution companies, and it really gets back, by the way, to centralizing the purchasing. It's really hard to do this if you don't have uh, some control of your purchasing and you have, you know, product managers or category managers who are negotiating with suppliers. But, you know, if you, if you are actually negotiating annual purchasing deals for at least your bigger suppliers, you're going to get much more favorable pricing. And you can also get rebates. And the way the rebates work are exactly the way you manage. You know, if I, hit a hundred thousand dollar purchasing threshold, I get X percent back on those purchases. And you know, the, the, the suppliers have those mechanisms in place, but I find a lot of distributors don't know it. And so they're not trying to negotiate uh, rebates. And 
you know, and, and then taking into account the next point, they're also not trying to get marketing co-op. Marketing co-op is just this morass of confusion with distributors and it's an area of frustration for manufacturers. And, you know, I would say, look, you know, you, you need professional purchasers in your organization who understand how to negotiate SBAs, how to negotiate a standard rebate, and all how to negotiate marketing co-op because rebates and co-op are not the same thing. And most of these major manufacturers, they have a marketing co-op budget. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to find sometimes because some of it's coming from headquarters and some of it's coming from the local rep, et cetera, or through the manufacturer's rep. But it's out there and it's real money and it can be very significant. I mean, you, you're talking two, three, five percent of your purchases refunded to you in the form of marketing co-op if you earn it by doing specific marketing programs. But again, this is not the kind of thing that manufacturers volunteer uh, because for a couple of reasons. One is they're, you know, they're trying to protect their own bottom line. The other one is a lot of times this money gets squandered, particularly the marketing co-op. Uh, you know, I mean, manufacturers get tired of paying for you know, golf, co golf tournaments at luxury hotels that really aren't, you know, turning into sales. And in many cases don't even have customers there, you know, so, but I, I think, you know, understanding how SBAs work, understanding how rebates work, understanding how co-op works, and then, you know, centralizing your purchasing, putting professionals in charge of it and figuring out how you maximize your return on that. That is an extraordinary amount of money. And here's the thing it doesn't raise your prices to your customers one bit. I mean, in some cases you can lower the pricing, but you're talking about an enormous amount of profitability that all comes from upstream, from your suppliers. And by the way, most suppliers are okay with this because if you're going to the effort of earning this money, you're probably growing with them. You're probably saying, look, we're, we've got, you know, right now five suppliers of hand tools. We're going to go to two. And so as a result, those two get a lot more business from you. So they're happy in that situation to negotiate a lower price and, you know, co-op and rebates in exchange for more volume instead of just this disorganized shotgun approach that a lot of distributors follow. So this is a whole area of, of, you know, expertise and professionalism and process that is just handled, you know, sort of ad hoc in a messy fashion by distributors today. I think it's instructive on, on this, like particularly the, the co-op, to look at what happens in retail. Um, so if you look at, at supermarkets or, or grocery chains, huge portion of their profit, their bottom line profit, is tied to marketing co-op dollars. Yeah, it's tied, it's tied to MDF, and they absolutely depend on that, which can be an issue in what they want to do with private label. You know, is their private label potentially conflicting with? Uh, one of the suppliers they have, one of the brands that they're selling uh, to get the, the co-op. But, but at the end of the day, it's a significant number. And I think what you're saying is that it's also a significant number in, in wholesale. It is. It's, a very, it's very significant. And, and there's a, and all kinds of good things come out of it, right? So, for example, a lot of times manufacturers have promotions in place, um, and they're not properly implemented in the organization at the distributor level because no one's really responsible for it. So this district will do it and that district won't. There's no organization. Well, if you actually have a category manager who is in charge of putting together a plan for that category, that promotion can be planned out months in advance because it's done professionally by an expert um, who knows what, what she's doing and she's able to plan this out so that the distributor grows sales and that and earns their way up to another discount tier. And and you know you get uh, people who know how to negotiate inventory inventory strategies like hey you know if I'm going from five 
hand tool suppliers to two, one of the things that's very common is those two will buy your inventory that you're displacing from the three that you're, three suppliers you're discontinuing. A lot of people don't know that. Those, those manufacturers will buy that dead inventory from their competitors that you have on hand to sell you more of their inventory because it's, you know, they, they view it as, hey, once I get that stuff in stock, I'm going to sell it for a long time. So I'm going to make an investment in this relationship. And that you're not going to get that from some local branch manager thinking he's negotiated a great deal with some local uh, hand tool supplier. You've got to get some alignment around this across the organization if you want to maximize pricing, if you want to maximize inventory performance, if you want to maximize uh, sales promotions and sales growth, if you want to maximize rebates and co-op. And distributors are not many. I would say the distributors that I meet with, one in 10 at most is doing this reasonably well. The others, it's all an area of opportunity. And every time you talk about profit, all they think about is raising prices. This is a way that you can make an enormous difference in your profitability and you don't raise prices at all. And I already said that, but it bears repeating. Profitability is not just about how well you sell. It's also about how well you buy. And you should ask yourself, how well am I buying? What's the opportunity there? Because that can have an enormous impact on your profitability without taking any risk with customers. However, I think that a lot of distributors, when they think about profitability, are more focused upstream, meaning supplier-facing, than customer-facing. There's a lot of cultural change in shifting pricing. And I've, I've heard some really amazing stories about companies that were implementing a pricing solution and the cultural change that it triggered. Um, one where there were adults in, who'd been with the company for a long time, male and female, in tears because of the changes they were being asked to make. They were, they were being asked to raise prices to their buddies, right, to their longtime friends that were their customers. And so I think, I, I think that the focus on pricing, there, there, are, there are people in distribution that know that, but I think the knee-jerk reaction is, well, how can I do something on the supplier-facing side of things? Because in, in some ways, it's harder, it's, or it seems harder, um, to go ask customers for or to demand more from customers in, in pricing. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's just a difference in experience thing because I see people work, you know, as soon as you talk about raising margins, that is synonymous with price increases for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, even the title of this webinar, we probably should have called it profit improvement hacks rather than pricing hacks, right? And if you have a, someone responsible for profitability in your distribution company, you should probably call them a director of, of profitability, not a director of pricing because it, you know, puts the focus on the, on the more robust you know, sort of full treatment of the problem rather than just focusing on selling prices. Better yet, chief profit officer. Chief profit officer, the CPO. I yeah. like that. Because, the, because then, then you can start looking at other things. So we, we've mostly been looking at, at gross margin, but a good chief profit officer is also going to be looking at, at cost to serve. And there are, there are greater differences between customers in the cost to serve than there are differences in the cost of goods of specific products. So there's actually a, a really big opportunity there to start to think about cost to serve, uh, to actually reward customers with better pricing if their cost to serve is low. What we've seen when we've gone and done profit analyses is that the, the difference in segments, we did this for one, one distributor, they, their PPF distributor sold to uh, industrial buyers and they sold to mechanical contractors. The industrial segment was literally five times as profitable 
as the contractor segment. And it was because uh -huh. of the differences in the cost to serve. So for every every dollar they sold in industrial, they had to sell five dollars to get this in, in the mechanical segment to get this into copper. Is there a is there a hack that you can use to try to get some benefit around cost to serve that uh, we can throw into this discussion? Well, I, th I think getting in, in, in all of this discussion, it's about getting the right analytics to, to make the decisions. So if it's pricing, you got to have the right analytics. If it's cost to serve, you got to have the right analytics. Ian, as you know, we've done uh, a lot of work with, with Waypoint and there are other players in the space now that are starting to offer analytics around cost to serve. I think you have to get the analytics there in the first place. In the absence of analytics, a decent proxy for cost to serve um, is the gross profit dollars in an order. So we're doing an analysis right now for a company who they don't have the analytics on the cost to serve. And we see that the their contractor segment of small contractors, one to 10, the gross profit dollars per order is $79, which is probably not making a lot of money. And if you go up to the next segment of contractors, 11 to 50, the gross profit dollars is $120 per order on average. So um, if, we're, if we're looking in the spirit of hack, meaning a shortcut, in the absence of those tools, I would say that's probably the best hack you can, you can provide. Okay. All right. So it's gross margin dollars per order. Yeah. I'm trying to drive that. All right. Hey, by the way, I cannot read the Q&A for some reason. So can you okay. see if we have any questions uh, for some reason? Sure. It won't, it won't so, open for me. So we have um, a question from Jason. Do you think COVID or the circumstances caused by it will make pricing shifts easier to make or justify? I think COVID will make pricing shifts easier to justify. Meaning up or down. Yeah. I think it's going to depend on the product. Um, you know, I was talking to one of our customers and they're having a tremendous difficulty getting gloves in the, in the PPE category. And they're seeing incredibly onerous, you know, supplier favorable terms on, on getting gloves. So I think it's going to depend on the category things that are in really, really short supply, you're going to have a easier time pushing those prices up. Yeah. I would, I would caution people against price gouging though, because you know, I mean, it's unethical. First of all, secondly, people have long memories about that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 you can be a Pyrrhic victory. You can win the battle. Those are the war. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So I think that's good. I think you're right. It's, it's certain, certain types of products. I think, you know, the, 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 the whole COVID story, though, isn't about pricing. It's about, did you have the right digital capabilities going into this pandemic? Because right. if you did, you won. And if you didn't, you lost. It was pretty much that simple. Next, next uh, question was, uh, or just suggestion for the title, how about chief value officer? So that brings up a really, really great point. If we think about pricing, so I, I teach pricing, uh, full disclosure, at the University of Colorado Business School. The, the perspective of value in the channel is different than the perspective of, of value from the supplier. So when the when suppliers or manufacturers set pricing, if they're doing their work right, they should really be understanding the value of their product to the, the, the customer who's going to use it. The channel doesn't have as much latitude around that in terms of really understanding value. They might understand value for you know small set of SKUs or for their primary brands or primary product categories. So um, I, I like the focus on value. I'm curious what you think about the title chief value officer, Ian. Yeah, I kind of like it. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think the, the problem with all these chief titles is it's hard to get C-level titles for something like profitability. So you're probably going to get, a, you know, maybe director of value. 
or director of profitability. I think anything's more, more holistic than pricing. And uh, so whether it's got a chief in front of it or a director, I think there's merit to it. I think we covered the push-up prices on C&D items to small customers, right? We did. Okay, so the next point for you podcast listeners is tie sales rep compensation to gross margin percentage growth or graduated commissions, so higher commissions on higher uh, profitability items. What do you think about that, Jonathan? Well, I, th- I think it's as we were talking about, you know, you've got a real estate agent, um, you've got a property for $250,000, you've got 50000 in it, and he or she has got a, what, 5% commission on it. Uh, if they discount $10,000 on the, on the price, you just lost 20% of your equity, and they just lost $600. <laughs> so yeah. we, what we want to do is we want to make sure that there's alignment between the, the company and, and the rep who's selling. So the idea with the, with the graduated commissions comes down to two things. One, what are you actually giving commission on? And two, how does it play into total um, quota for the year? So a technique that I've seen that's powerful is you take the actual gross profit dollars, and if it's within a certain range, that is the basis for the commission. I'm sorry, if, if the gross margin is within a certain range on that, that becomes the basis for the commission and the, and the quota. Um, if the pricing, is, the gross margin is above a certain level, you can actually put in multipliers. So even, even though it was technically $10,000 of gross profit dollars, the multiplier says, well, we're actually gonna make it $12,000 of gross profit dollars. That's the basis for commission as well as contributing to your quota. And conversely, the other side, if the, if the gross percentage margin is too low, you can put a multiplier that reduces that $10,000 to $8,000. So I think that's a really powerful way to, to start to get alignment between what the company wants and what the, the reps are doing on the street. Yeah, you know, it's funny because a lot of uh, distributors, they pay on a flat gross margin basis. So, or you know, it's, you know the sales reps get X percentage of all gross margin dollars sold. And I think that's a misalignment in many ways, like with the realtor, right? I mean, realtors want you to sell your house for less because it only costs them a little, but they can vastly decrease the number of units they sell per year because you know, it's easier to sell a cheaper house. But you only, you're only selling one house that year. And so it doesn't work for you as a seller, which was your point, right? right. Um, same thing with sales reps. It's like, well, you know, hey, if I get paid on gross margin dollars, I'm going to create as many gross margin dollars as I can. And I'm not going to try. I'm going to try not to lose any. So if I have to discount to move more volume, because it's, remember, it's a lot easier to sell if you're the cheapest game in town. I'm just going to try to drive gross margin dollar volume. But in many cases, that doesn't really work for the distributor. And, and, and uh, you know, I, so I, I, do think, I do think this idea of either requiring growth in order to earn commissions uh, or, you know, tying GM dollar, GM percentage growth to commissions or just doing graduated commissions, like you said, where it's like, okay, you get, you know, 3% of commissions at this gross margin percentage and you get 4% of gross margin dollars at this percentage. I mean, I think graduating like that makes sense. Another, another variant of this, which we've started to see some of is instead of trying it, instead of tying things to gross margin, actually tying it to operating margin. Um, mm-hmm. and, and those experiments are, are newer. You know, I've, I've started to hear some success with them. It is, it's big cultural change to get that through an organization. Again, like I said before, you, you have to have the analytics to, to pull that off. But then at, at that point, you, you and the sales rep are aligned. 
And I get the academic appeal of that. I think my concern is that pricing systems need to be very simple and understandable to account managers because if they're not, they don't believe them. And you start talking about operating dollars and you're throwing in a lot of costs and there are a lot of arguments about how, well, that cost was, well, didn't really go up just because I sold that next order. You're just taking an average. And so I think, you know, there, there, there's some appeal there and I understand that, but I'm skeptical that you can get people to understand it versus just, you know, Hey, it was a 20% margin item. So here's the, here's the profit and I get a percentage of that. That That is definitely the flip side of that. You, you can, it, it's the, the measurement is, is more disputable. Okay. Our last topic uh, before we close is limiting pricing authority in an organization. Have you seen success with this, Jonathan? Yeah. And I think we've all seen the converse of that or the opposite of that, where the pricing authority is at the, at the point where the customer touches, where meaning where the sales rep or the CSR has too much pricing authority. So I think what I've seen in best practices is where companies can, similar to the purchasing, can start to centralize the pricing authority. Any, any movement towards that uh, tends to be a win in reining in wanton, for lack of a better term, field sales reps and their pricing. And customer service. <laughs> and customer service, yeah. yeah. And any of the customer-facing personnel that are making those decisions, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think you need to set some pretty severe limits on on the amount of latitude that people have for pricing. I mean, I think I told you this morning that when I was at Granger a million years ago, account managers were actually paid uh, based on gross sales, which everybody says is the wrong thing to do. But the pricing controls were so strict <laughs> that it, it really, you know, uh, protected the ability of the company to earn higher gross margins. And I don't think that's a good thing to do, but it worked. Now that was a base and commission environment, but you know, nobody actually knew the cost and you do kind of have to reveal cost if you want to do base commissions based on gross margin dollars or at least some form of cost and or gross margin percentage. And so, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, the at Granger, you had very little pricing authority. I mean, even, even branch managers and all the exceptions were reported up the chain. So I think you can control margins pretty well. With that, I'm not suggesting that's the right way to do it. Looks like we have one more question. Can you look it up? Yeah, you bet. Um, this is one of our favorite commenters, um, limiting pricing authority in capital letters. That point in itself will drive greater than one percent additional gross margin. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I agree. I think you know you you just you've got to get control of it. It's your you know if you're responsible if you're the general manager and you're responsible for the profitability of your company, then you need to get your hands around this. There's there's no choice because there's such an enormous amount of opportunity. And, and you know, remember, if you ever go to sell the company, it's done on a multiple of your profits, multiple of EBITDA. And so, you know, if you, if you improve another dollar to the bottom line, that might be seven to 10 times dollars that you get when you sell it. So it's a, it has a huge impact on the, on the valuation of the company. And, on your, and frankly, on your ability to pay, to, to hire, train, and compensate good people. You got to make money to do that. Okay, um, anything else you want to throw in there, Jonathan, before we wrap up? Well, I, th I think there's a there's a lot here, and um, there's a lot that's there's a lot that is that's untapped by a lot of distributors. And so, going back to that first point, the power of one percent. Each of these hacks that we've mentioned is probably a greater than one percent impact, right? And so, if you can get a few of these, um, if you're like most distributors in terms of your your EBITDA, you know, single digit percentages, you can have a material impact on profitability. And 
although the title of this, what was what the title? Painless. These, I would, I would not say that these things are painless. Um, <laughs> I think I, I think I wrote that title. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say they're painless, but they're worthwhile because you, you can see the companies that get, that get excellence in profit management in pricing in buying and managing co-op um, and how they manage their, their reps, the systems they have in place. Um, you can see the companies that do that. And, you know, we, we get it and we're working with a company right now that has just exceptional pricing discipline. It's about as clean as I've ever seen it. And it really jumps out. So it is possible to do that. It's possible to make these changes. So right. I, I would encourage people to take this seriously, to not get uh, distracted by the shite, bright, bright, shiny object of additional market share and say, instead, how do we look at additional profitability? That that power of 1% on the profitability side is going to have much greater impact than another point of sales volume. Yeah, I, I would add to that, that. I agree with everything you said. I think uh, one thing to keep in mind is that you can't force faith. You have to let people sort of learn as they go. So I think you, you can take control of your, of your profit future. Uh, you can drive a lot of change, but make sure you're communicating and over communicating and training and giving people the opportunity to buy in over time. Uh, not, you know, you can't just shove it down everyone's throats. Right. And so there is some cultural change here uh, that will help you win over time. Um, but you know, you, you do want to get the organization to buy into this and not just uh, be in a forced compliance mode. Agreed. Okay. Well, um, great talking to you. This will be available on podcast and an archive webcast. Um, and this is a, that's a wrap for uh, wholesale change for the week. Jonathan, it's been great talking to you as always, and uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah.